Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 100. There was a priestly tradition of days of old. The Zadokites are the priest, the son of Tzadok. Tzadok was the priest who anointed mm. David and Solomon to be kings, a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Mm-hmm. All the Zadokite priesthood is detailed in the books of uh, Chronicles, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was a Zadokite high priest. But after the Zadokite priesthood, now came the Pharisees. Hello, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. On the last three episodes, I brought to your attention a couple of interviews that I conducted with two well-known and highly respected scholars speaking about the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Episode 97 was part one. On that program, I spoke with Dr. James C. Vonderkam, retired professor of Hebrew scriptures at Notre Dame University. I then went on to present to you episodes 98 and 99, which was parts 2 and 3. On those programs, I spoke candidly with Dr. Rachel Elior, professor of Jewish philosophy and mystical thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. All this said, today's program is episode 100 and part 4 of my multi-part series that I'm producing on this subject of the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls. On this program, I want to extract and distill into some relevant points, some of the actual noteworthy ideas that both of these scholars presented to us. Consider this episode as a kind of summary of what I considered some important points from their scholarly thoughts. However, more specifically, what I want to talk about today is not whether these two scholars are presumed to be necessarily right or wrong in all that they said. Rather, I want to speak to you about what they were saying and then link their viewpoints back to the word of the scriptures that we all know and love. Said another way, I want to know how we can better understand scripture because of what they said. So what I am going to share with you today does not necessarily presume that I am correct in my associations between what the scrolls are saying and what I am reading in the scriptures. Rather, consider my viewpoints merely as an expression of what I perceive that I am seeing in the narratives of scripture as we compare those words to the words of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's begin with some comments of Professor Dr. James C. Vonderkam from Episode 97 and Part 1 in my study series on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I asked Dr. Vonderkam about what he considered the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and why he thinks that they are important for us to understand today. 
he responded with several important ideas. The scrolls contain our very earliest copies of books that are now in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Perhaps 200 copies in all, that is all fragmentary copies, but copies of almost all of the books uh, in the Hebrew Bible. These are far and away the earliest witnesses to the text of those biblical books. And essentially, Dr. Rachel Elior told me pretty much the same thing. Now, you may ask me, what is the most important things about the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I would say it gives us a whole new insight on Jewish history. It tells us about things we didn't know anything about. There are books we never heard about their existence. I then asked Professor Vonderkam if he considered it true that the Second Temple period was a time when there was more than one Judaism, meaning Judaism's plural. There is some justification for using the plural Judaisms, uh, as you indicated, and quite a number of people use language like The point is to communicate that uh, not all Jewish people at the time uh, agreed on everything, (laughs) as we might expect uh, for any group. (laughs) But um, we know of several different groups in Judaism. The Pharisees are famous ones, the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. There were other groups as well. I suppose we could do the same for today, speak about different kinds of of Jewish groups. But it's important to know that it was diverse Uh, in the centuries we're talking about, and the groups argued and debated their issues, and some of those arguments we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Professor Vonderkam also told me that the Dead Sea Scrolls contain a number of written texts that never made it into the Hebrew Bible, or what is called the canon of Hebrew Scripture. But about three-quarters of the texts that were found uh, in those caves are uh, other kinds of literature. Some of it was literature written for uh, a group near these caves and had a unusual kind of community. So they wrote a number of texts for their own life, expressing their own beliefs, expressing their worship. Uh, They also had copies of books that uh, did not make it into the Bible, at least not the Hebrew Bible, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and others like that texts that uh, give the details of a a religious calendar, many texts that give us very early examples of how biblical passages were interpreted, all kinds of texts that have greatly, greatly increased the amount of information we have about Judaism Mm -hmm. in the last two centuries before this era and in the first century of our era. Mm. So it it was a, a, a treasure to find these texts and to have this kind of information provided for us, information that we really did not have before. Then I asked Professor Elior a similar question about the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible. I asked her if the Pharisees of the Second Temple period had anything at all to do with making sure that certain selected written documents were left out of the official canon of Hebrew scripture that we call the Masoretic text. What did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees, Poshim in Hebrew, Pharisees in English, Mm -hmm. 
said that they have an oral tradition according to which they are allowed to interpret the biblical heritage. Mm-hmm. And they said, we don't accept anymore the priestly order of the Hashmonites. And they said, we need a new calendar, which is according to the hmm. lunar calendar. Hmm. And we don't wish to have, after the destruction of the temple, the Zadokite calendar, because there is no temple anymore. The Zadokite are the priest, the son of Tzadok, and the Pharisees, they said, we do not accept your tradition. That's the distance between Pharisees and Sadducees. They disagree about things, about the temple, about the calendar, about writing. The Pharisees said 24 and no more. We close the canon. Hmm. 24 and no more. And the closing of the canon, the Masoretic text, is between post-70 and before 136. They were closing the canon mm-hmm. and they left outside the priestly books. They called them Sfarim Chitzonim. But the priests were there thousands of years before them and those mm-hmm. who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were hundreds of years before them. They did not accept them because they had a new political circumstances. The Pharisees, they became the legitimate leadership mm-hmm. after the destruction of the temple. They said, we don't want anymore the ancient priestly calendar. We don't want the Roman calendar. Mm. We don't want the Hashmonite calendar. We want a new calendar. Mm. What's the principle of our new calendar? We would never tell you how many days are in a year. We would never tell you how many days are in a month. We would never tell you what's the principle of calculation. It's our secret. You will come to us. And we would arrange the calendar. It took them thousand years to arrange the calendar. All the texts found stored in clay jars in the caves along the northwest shores of the Dead Sea include, among many documents, the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch, or in Hebrew, Hanukh. Particularly, these texts reveal some valuable information about a solar 364-day calendar that was considered a core issue of practice at the time by the community called the Qumran community. Their now-discovered texts, initially written on animal skin parchments, explains how certain biblical passages were interpreted and understood in their time. Of course, this has given today's biblical scholarship a great amount of new information that was previously unknown about ancient Judaism's Second Temple period and how ancient Jewish theology evolved during the two centuries before this common era, which is abbreviated by biblical scholars as BCE, which is before the common era, as compared to CE, which means the common era, or the time we're living in today. This being said, I would like to express a thought about some folks who boldly speak against the Qumran community and the writings that they produced. Particularly from time to time, I come across people who are quite anti-Enoch and anti-Book of Jubilees. And then they go on to be overly critical of how the Qumran community group interpreted scripture and understood those ideas. However, the point that I want to make is this. 
I find it difficult to understand how some can imply in a rather condescending way that the Qumran community was out of touch with the truth of Scripture, as if to say, oh, those silly Qumran people, they had it all wrong. What they believed was an error because they were obviously influenced by pagan philosophies. Then some of the more chatty and loud theological thinkers of our day, they pipe up and tend to come across bold enough to think that they definitely know better than all those silly Qumran monks or whatever they would want to call them. In all truth, I am not so confident that any of us should be thinking this way. Put a different way, I think it's actually quite presumptuous to think that perhaps we are more enlightened about spiritual matters and biblical interpretation than those, dare we say, silly Qumran people who lived some 2,200 years ago. Honestly, I think that we all just need to get a grip and stop being so judgmental against a community of people 2,200 years ago, a group of people that we really don't know that much about. So as I see things, they were much, much closer to biblical truth and biblical culture than we are today. In my opinion, I think we need to cool our jets and get off our high horses, so to speak, and stop being so arrogant. Because plausibly, the more we learn, the less we really understand. And this is how I see things, considering that we are very far removed from those ancient days. And we do have a lot to learn as students of Scripture. Rather than acting as a judge, jury, and executioner of the Qumran community, all wrapped up in one nice, neat little package, we are all in this learning curve together in these modern days. And I don't think that we should be making any room for arrogance, and certainly not any arrogance against these people referred to as the Qumran community, or whatever you want to call them. Over time and dedicated research, I think that as we gain more and more understanding about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community of people that wrote them, we must ask Jehovah to show us why the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries are important, not only to us, but also to our Father in Heaven. After all, the scrolls remained hidden, untouched, and in reasonably good shape for nearly 2,000 years. Well, I say in and of itself, this is quite remarkable. Furthermore, the fact that these scrolls were brought to our attention at the end of November 1947, when the United Nations voted to declare Israel as the restored national homeland of the Jewish people, which happened on November 29, 1947. 
I find it captivating that these Dead Sea Scrolls and all of their hidden literary secrets just happen to all of a sudden get discovered at such an incredible and opportune time in our history. So what I'm saying is there is obviously a divine reason and a purpose why these scrolls came to be made available to us right now in the timeline of human history. And furthermore, especially we should be very thankful to the many, many Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek scholars and linguistic experts out there who continue to dedicate their lives to quite literally putting all of the thousands of fragments of these scrolls together. You see, their work helps all of us to make some theological sense of what the Qumran community understood some 2,000 years ago. Since the discovery of the hundreds of available scrolls from 1947 until these very days in which we live, connecting the fragments together using modern scholarship and computer technology, I would say that we are all very fortunate to have the biblical scholarship and information available as it is. Now, before we can go forward and take a deep research dive into the biblical learning that these ancient documents provide us with, I say, let us recall that none of this information from the Dead Sea Scrolls was hidden and secreted away by sheer accident. Nope, I don't believe this for a moment. Yehovah knew that we would need all the information that these scrolls contain for living our lives in these last days as we approach the return of Yeshua the Messiah. All of this is indeed an exceptional spiritual and historical treasure trove, and we not only have Yehovah to thank for preserving the volumes of these documents, but also we should remain thankful to the many literary and theological scholars out there who have tirelessly worked day in and day out to put all of these fragments together, to translate them, and finally to publish them. And mind you, their work is freely accessible on the internet for anyone and everyone who might have an interest in learning about the Bible and ancient Judaism's Second Temple period through the eyes of this group that is referred to as the Qumran community. And if you would, please let me go on, because oftentimes the volumes of scholars doing all of their work on the scrolls over decades and sometimes at great personal expense should be appreciated by us and by all people of all walks of life who have a love and a desire to learn about these scrolls and the Bible. Indeed, there are many highly qualified people out there that have been involved in this Dead Sea Scrolls project since its early days, beginning with November of 1947. 
Of course, we are not going to get all of our questions about the scrolls answered overnight. Rather, I think for each of us, let us remember that we are standing on the shoulders of some very great theological giants of our generation. There is still much more to learn even while the scholarly debate continues on about the identity of the Qumran community writers. Were they Essenes? Were they not Essenes? Were they of some other group? Who were they exactly? And why did they write the documents that they wrote and then secret them away for posterity? Why did they do all of this? Was it perhaps that they knew something that we are only now coming to realize today? Did they do this to preserve important biblical information for the benefit of centuries and generations of people yet future to their own time? Well, maybe the answer is yes, maybe no. But regardless, the scrolls are providing us today with some understanding about Hebrew Scripture and about the unseen realms of Jehovah's heavenly worlds. According to Professor Rachel Elior, who has been studying these scrolls since the early 1970s, today her viewpoints are well-defined because of her decades-long studies in these scrolls and because Hebrew is her mother tongue. When I did the interview with Professor Elior, she explained to me that this treasure of scrolls can be understood loosely as four different categories of documents. One quarter is the biblical, one quarter is the parabiblical, the one that retells the biblical tradition according to the solar calendar and the angelica lore and the Enoch stories and so on. The third part, is about a war. It's called polemic literature. Polemos in Greek is war. Polemic mm -hmm. literature between sons of light and sons of darkness. Mm. People who believe in the solar calendar and people who believe in the lunar calendar. The Greeks had brought the lunar calendar to us mm. in the year 175 BCE. That's from the story of Hanukkah. When Antiochus had introduced the Greek old lunar calendar for Collecting taxes, no religious inclinations, no religious enforcement. He wanted tax-collecting calendar, and he said, my calendar, I'm the ruler, I'm Antiochus, I'm the Seleucian king. Mm. My calendar is lunar, and you would pay according to my calendar, and I would like a birthday according to my calendar in the temple every month. Now, the priest of the Zadokite priest told him, we would pay all taxes, we have no choice, but we cannot do it according to the Greek calendar, because the whole entire temple worship is based on the priestly solar calendar from the days of Enoch. We cannot change it. This is the foundation for the whole entire thing. King Antiochus said there is no democracy off with you. He disrowned them. He nominated new, mm. bad, Greek, Hellenized Jewish mm -hmm. uh, priests of the wrong origin. It's a very long, complicated story. But mm. the last thing is that the Greek lunar calendar was imposed on the Jewish people. And there was no way to get rid of it because the Hashmonite kings were nominated by the Seleucian Greek rulers. 
Anyhow, at the first century before the Common Era, there was a lot of tension and commotion between the Greek lunar calendar, the Roman new calendar, the old priestly calendar, and the fourth part of the Qumran library, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's about the mystical liturgy. After we take a quick break, we'll come back and learn about the Hebrew nation and how it was made up of five different categories of Israelites with each group assigned a specific kingdom role and responsibility. A violation of this principle is at the very foundation of our understanding as to why the Qumran community, Kohanim or priests, and all those in support of the leadership's viewpoint how they grew very tired of all the corruption in Jerusalem. We're going to learn about what drove them to get away from it all by escaping to the desert of the Dead Sea region in order to rebuild biblical Torah Judaism. Join me for our second hour next. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 100. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben-Mordechai. Hello once again, Avi Ben-Mordechai here. Welcome to the second half of Real Israel Talk Radio. So let's continue where we left off before the break. I was discussing that I think we should learn to appreciate from the Bible that the Hebrew nation was made up of different categories of people. And in this, each group was assigned a very specific kingdom role and responsibility. Allow me to go through them with you now. And as I do, this will lead us into more understanding about these Dead Sea Scrolls and what they are and what they contain, and also a little bit more about the people that were involved in writing all of those documents and then hiding them away for us to discover in our generation. Firstly, from the Bible, Israel was to be known as a collective body of Israelites designated as the people of yud or the people of Yehovah, as it is written in Scripture at Exodus 6, verses 7 through 8. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yehovah, your Elohim, or your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Jehovah. So, firstly, Israel was this collective body of Israelites designated as the people of Jehovah. And therefore, Jehovah said in Leviticus 11.45, For I am Jehovah, who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your Elohim, or your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, it might interest you to know that this last point was written down as a principal teaching of 
the truth in the New Covenant texts, particularly from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is kadosh or is holy or separate, so also be holy, be separate, be set apart in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Again, taken from Vayikra or Leviticus 11.45. And then there is this from 1 Peter 1.17-19. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So all of this brings us back to that first principal group of Israel as a collective body of Israelites dedicated to show the nations and to show the world that we are the people of Jehovah or the people of Yah. So this brings us to a second category of the Hebrew nation expressed as a unified body of tabernacle and temple servants referred to as Levites. This was a family of Israel with their own specific roles, responsibilities, and tasks to perform. We learn about this from Numbers or Bamidbar in Hebrew, chapter 1, Verses 50 through 53. It reads as follows You shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all of its furnishings, and over all things that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children or sons of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard or his own flag, according to their armies. But, the text says, the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge 
of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, this is a really important passage from the book of Numbers, or Bamidbar, chapter 1, verses 50 through 53, because we have to remember this one key point. Nowhere in Scripture are Levites specifically referred to as priests or Kohanim, because this is not the way Jehovah set up his program for the Hebrew nation. The Kohanim, or the priesthood, was never in the job description of the Levite. Never. They had a very specific role, a task, and a responsibility to carry out in regards to the tabernacle and in regards to the nation of Israel and in regards to camping around the tabernacle. Okay? So now let's go on to the third point that I want to make, which is the third group in this category of ancient Israel in the Bible. This third group from the Israelite community, the Hebrew nation, was comprised of a body of priests, or Kohanim, as it's referred to in Hebrew. They had their own unique roles and tasks to perform within the collective body of the Hebrew nation. And this was written down for us in ancient days in the Hebrew Bible at Exodus 28, 1 through 3. It reads as follows. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a Kohen or a priest, that is, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadav Avihu, Eleazar, and Itamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, and that he may minister to me as a Kohen or a priest, but not just any Kohen, but a high priest. Okay? So this takes us to Bamidbar, or the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. The text says, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the Kohen or priest, that they may serve him, and they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. Also, they shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting and to the needs of the children or sons of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. So in summary, here are the three groups that make up the collective body of the Hebrew nation, referred to as Israel, but not Jews. Don't make that mistake, as so many people do, and they call these people the Jewish people. That's not the correct terminology. These are Israelite people, or the Hebrew nation. 
So in summary, the three categories of all the work that is done for Yehovah and for everything going on with the tabernacle, those three categories or groups of people within the body that is called the Hebrew nation or the Israelite nation are as follows. One, priests or Kohanim. Two, Levites or Levim. And three, Israelites or Israelim, who are a group of people that make up the general assembly of the body being neither Kohanim nor Levim. In Hebrew Scripture, Jehovah makes it clear that He is the one who determines the jobs and the functions and the responsibilities of what is called the people of Yudhevaveh, or the people of Jehovah. Historically, it was a breach of this teaching that brought about a divine judgment for a group of Levites or Leviim who simply grew very tired and angry and arrogant in the job that Jehovah had given to them. Quite seriously, they just were not content with their divine calling. And we learn about this problem in the book of Bamidbar or Numbers, chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And also in the book of Numbers or Bamidbar, chapter 16, verses 8 through 10. I'll read both passages for you here. Numbers 16, 1 through 3. Yehovah said to Moshe or Moses, Now Korah, the son of Itzar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, with Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliav, and on the son of Pelet, the sons of Ruvain, took men, and they rose up before Moshe with some of the sons of Israel, two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation men of renown, meaning they were pretty well known. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and collectively they said to them, quote, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and Jehovah is among them, as well as being able to say, Jehovah is in them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yudhe or Yehovah? This is a really, really important point, because these 250 leaders of the congregation simply did not like the fact that Yehovah had specific roles, jobs, and responsibilities for the categories that he had assigned to the Hebrew nation as a collective body. They just didn't like it. And essentially they were saying, look, we have just as much a right to do the things that you guys are doing, so why are you leaving us out? As though the two of you and your families are the only ones that are allowed to do these particular things that are mentioned in that text. So then the narrative goes on 
in Bamidbar, or Numbers, 16, 8 through 10. And here, Moses responds, And he said to Korah, who was of the family of the Levites, and he says to him and to all of that family, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the Elohim, or God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of Jehovah and to stand before the congregation to serve them and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you? And then finally Moses says, and... Are you seeking the priesthood also? It's a very convicting question that he asked. And I bring this up because this last point is clearly understood to be at the very foundation of the teaching that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for the effective working out of spiritual Israel's new covenant economy. Let's take a look at it here in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. This is what I believe to be Paul's response to the book of Numbers 16, 8 through 10, where Moses asked Korah and the sons of Levi, and are you seeking the priesthood also? Here's what Paul says. For as the body is one and has many members, But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Messiah. For by one Spirit we were all immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Well, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? And now Elohim, or God, has set the members each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, Well, I just don't have any need for you. Nor again, the head to the feet, saying, I have no need of you. No, no, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be the weaker are in fact necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But Elohim, or God, composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, 
that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with him. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with him. Now you are the body of Messiah and members individually. So again, I think this is Paul's response and his answer to the Korach rebellion in the book of Numbers 16, 8 through 10, with the question that Moses asked the sons of Levi and Korach, and are you seeking the priesthood also? The idea here is be content with your calling in the body of Messiah. And don't try to pull off the routine of Korah, who gathered all of his family member of the Levites together and decided to initiate a rebellion and a mutiny against Moses and Aaron and the things that Jehovah wanted to do with the nation of Israel. Don't do it because you're going to get yourself in trouble And I think Jehovah is very serious and very clear about this. The conclusion of all that has been explained up to now returns us back to the beginning in order to try and understand the divine purpose for the Qumran community group, who they were, and why they wrote the documents that we identify today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let us be reminded of what Moses said by the authority that was given to him from Jehovah. Before dying, Moses warned the whole congregation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31, 29, For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of Jehovah to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Over time and history, this scenario has played out over and over again. In the case of what we learn about in the scroll referred to as the Damascus document, is that of the rightful authority of the Tzadokite priests to be Israel's teachers and judges due to the political and spiritual climate of the mid to late Second Temple period, that specific family of priests functioning under David and his son Solomon, that priesthood family authority was replaced with a new system under the Pharisees, which was not the old system. The calendar issue was just the spark that torched national biblical trust in Jehovah. Like the story of Korah, in number 16, non-Setakite priests, scribes, and Pharisees took away the occupations of the Tzedekite priesthood in Jerusalem and built up a new system that included many new instructions, including that of implementing a new calendar. 
there was a priestly tradition of days of old. The Zadokites are the priest, the son of Tzadok. Tzadok was the priest who anointed mm. David and Solomon to be kings, a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Mm -hmm. All the Zadokite priesthood is detailed in the books of uh, Chronicles, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was a Zadokite high priest. But after the Zadokite priesthood, there was a hundred years of Hashmonite rule, which was illegitimate, wrong, usurpers. Mm -hmm. Now came the Pharisees. Pharisees are the sages, later known as the rabbis. The Pharisees, Purshim in Hebrew, Pharisees in English, mm -hmm. said that they have an oral tradition according to which they are allowed to interpret the biblical heritage. Mm -hmm. And they said, we don't accept anymore the priestly order of the Hashmonites. And they said, we need a new calendar, which is according to the lunar calendar, hmm. and we don't wish to have, after the destruction of the temple, the Zadokite calendar, because there is no temple. The Zadokites are the priests, the son of Tzadok, and the Pharisees, they said, we do not accept your tradition. That's the distance between Pharisees and Zadokites. They disagree about things, about the temple, about the calendar, about writing. With all this, Jerusalem came to be what Yeshua and the prophet Jeremiah called a den of thieves, and what Paul referred to in Galatians 4.25 as Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Precisely, this is what led the Tzedekite priests to go and make their home in the desert regions of the Dead Sea. And there, they deposited their ancient documents. We'll come back to talk more about all of this on the next podcast. Meanwhile, if you have any questions or comments about any of our programs, navigate over to our website at www. Dot .cominghome.co.il Again, cominghome.co.il Y'all willing, we'll see you next week to talk about more of the Dead Sea Scrolls on part five of this series. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Real Israel Talk Radio